When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan welcome Simon Reynolds, the author of Energy Flash, to discuss his book and the history of electronic dance music. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, returning once again with Ryan Harkness to continue, actually to conclude our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. And since we've discussed every chapter in the book, we now have a special treat. We've got Simon Reynolds himself here with us. Simon, welcome. Good to be with you guys. And so hopefully, um, if you have listened to the episodes, you're not burning with any grudges about dumb things we've said. No, no, it all seemed very uh, um, uh, well thought out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a good choice of words. great to have uh, such an in-depth um, coverage of the uh, of the book. It's bloody oh. long. I, I think you set us up a really, a really demanding challenge there. How many chapters are there? It's like there's 23 episodes. I think we might have inserted one when we felt like you covered, skipped over something we wanted to cover. I think we did an extra trance chapter, but. Right. Yes. It wasn't a slog, though. It was it was it was fun and entertaining and mostly educational. And I'm actually going to hand it over to Ryan to start asking the questions. Yeah, Simon, thanks for for being here. And before we jump into discussing the book, I was just curious, uh, based on your bibliography, obviously, you're uh, you got a lot of musical taste. But I was I was interested in knowing what you're listening to uh, as far as electronic music goes these days. And maybe something that's not like a daily listen, but what's the the latest kind of addition to the to the hardcore continuum that you've heard recently that made you kind of sit up and take notice? Um, I, it's hard for me to think of the last contemporary electronic record that I listened to. Um, uh, I listen to a lot of electronic music, but it's all from the past. Like I'm really, really uh, obsessively interested in sort of 60s, 70s, even starting in the 80s, sort of avant-garde electronic music, tape music, music concrete, early synthesizer music. Um, I sort of used to be just analog era, but then it sort of crept to the early sort of digital experimental music, the first. They have a sort of appealing clunkiness, these sort of early you know, composers trying to do things with the synclavier or, or just, uh, you know, you know they're doing things that later on you get in 
in sort of IDM. Um, so this is an endless, there's an endless amount of it. And, and there's all these kind of obscure composers, a lot of female composers who, who it's, a, it's a field that, um, you know, there's all kinds of uh, interesting women composers. Like there's one who I've got into recently called Anne Southern, who um, was Canadian, who did some amazing records. So I, I kind of, it's the history really of electronic music that, are, that I'm steeped in these days. I mean, I do, when people really rave about a new electronic re release in the dance area or sort of edge of dance area, I, I check it out sort of slightly dutifully. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it was Ski Maskers or a rated band, I think, or an artist. Um, uh, I like the, the latest Burial thing, but then Burial is like, a, is like, is a bit like, you know, being a fan of how you would listen to the latest Elvis Costello record, like back in the day, like, you know, oh, Elvis Costello's got a new album out. I'll listen to it, and um, it was. I thought it was really good, uh, Anti Dawn. Um, but yeah, hardcore continuum. I think hardcore continuum is history now. I think it's. I think the the, the, ch the changes in the nature of how music works mean that pirate radio is not a thing anymore, and that was really the engine of of that culture. And um, like UK drill is, it has been the the, the street sound of. London in, in the same way that Jungle was once and Grime, but um, it works in a different way. There's no pirate radio. I don't think there are even physical form records. It's all through YouTube clips. It proliferates through, I don't know, probably forms of, of uh, social media I don't even know the name of. And <laughs> um, But yeah, it's very like, um, it's, you know, a long way from the age of dub plates and vinyl and and um, pirate radio, you know, it's a completely different culture. It's not even a form of dance music, UK drill. I don't have you guys heard any of that stuff? A oh, little yeah. bit, a little bit. Yeah, yeah I interviewed we, Kit Mac. A friend of mine, this writer, Kit Macintosh, wrote a very interesting book called Neon Screams. And he, uh, although the book's largely about the effect of auto tune on music, he has a whole chapter on drill. Drill, UK, UK drill doesn't have auto tune in it, but he just wanted to write about it. He's so passionate about it. And he says that you can hear these sort of echoes in the rhythms of traces of the hardcore continuum of jungle sort of things, but it's all used in a way that isn't really for dancing. It's just um, it's all about these sort of, you know, very gory lyrics wrapped in this um, very British sort of speech patterns that create a whole different kind of flow. Um, and they have these sort of doomy pianos in. It's almost more like ambient music, I think, drill, UK drill. I think that's how... It's sort of the tracks are quite samey and they kind of establish this sort of this sort of gothic almost um mood while the lyrics are all about gangs and 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 that kind of thematic you know so it's sort of like maybe a descendant of the hardcore continuum but it's the the structures around it are so different it's not for dancing really it's not there's no pirate radio there's no actually you can't buy it really i don't think and do you think they're even compact discs of it um, it's just a whole different, we're in a different era. And I think Hardcore Continuum was, was so linked to pirate radio, so linked to raves and, and, um, and also records as well, vinyl, I think as well, you know, white labels and obscure record shops in dodgy parts of London. That's all in the past now. And actually let's go ahead and hear our first song. And I want to plug 
I've got an interview with Kit McIntosh about his book, Neon Screams and Trap Drill and uh, Bashment coming out. That'll be the second episode of our 14th season for those tuning in. But let's hear Joey Beltran's Energy Flash, which was an obvious pick because Simon named his book after it. Joey Beltram's classic Energy Flash. Um, uh, uh, no need to explain why we picked that since you named the book after it. And I've got one question for you. You, the first question I think in the Q and A that you included at the end of the 2012 edition of the book, basically deflects charges of rockism that you were writing this book from the perspective of a rock fan, which you've been. Um, and you pretty deftly explained that you were using the rock terminology and the comparisons to Black Sabbath and post-punk bands, et cetera, to bring in readers, people like me, who are coming from a rock place, who slept through the EDM revolution when it was happening. And that worked great. But, you know, the first series we did was going through Brewster and Broughton's Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, which really opened my eyes to the importance of DJs. And so this book was a great compliment to it because of your emphasis on the producers and the records. But I was wondering if you're, you know, if you've kept up with the literature on EDM that's come out since this book, and is there a book that sort of squares the circle and combines Brewster and Broughton's emphasis on DJs with <clears throat> your history of uh, the changes in dance music over the same period? Well, if there is, I'm hardly going to recommend it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I don't, I don't know. There might be. Um... I think, yeah, well, you played Energy Flash, and this is fantastic because when I interviewed Joey Beltran, the first major piece I did with details, uh, you know, not only was he making tracks that actually like sampled, you know, um, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin, but he actually claimed when I interviewed him, claimed that he was on the on the shortlist to produce the next Metallica album. And so the convergence between the, the thing that I was talking about, like these affinities between rock music and 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 rave music are just there. And if you look at the histories of individuals, so many of them, you know, I think people in Orbital had a past in anarcho-punk and bands like Crass. A lot of people who were into rock music uh, got into club music. It's never been, there's never been that sort of total separation that some kind of club wanted people think that it's a whole other world. Um, even if you go back to the beginnings of underground disco, I think um, David Mancuso was kind of a, a, a hippie-ish character. He'd been, in, he'd been to like, he'd been into acid rock and stuff, and and um, you know, and then some of those sort of techniques, you know, of the psychedelic scene of using lights to create a hypnotic trance, actually feed into disco culture. Um, I interviewed David Mancuso some years ago and he took me around to where his legendary hi-fi was kept. He, I, I don't know why, but he kept it at a friend's house. And the record he played me was not, um, you know, some loft 
house classic, you know, or, or uh, underground disco classic. He played Astral Weeks, which sounded unbelievably good on this amazing stereo. It had a, you know, a, a, a $5,000 stylus and a $10,000 cartridge, you know, and he drops off the thing and, and uh, he's playing Astral Weeks. You know? So this idea that, that um, club music is somehow uh, either separate from rock music, I mean, most rock music was at one point dance music. There was no such, you know, all the great. So I don't see, I don't see the, this divide. And people are crossing constantly um, back and forth. And in the book, in my book, you know, you have the whole Manchester thing. You have these, you know, you have all the people like Happy Mondays and and some of those are essentially indie groups who then get very dancey and turn on to the latest rhythms. So um, I'm sorry, I forgot what your original question was. Um, I don't know if there is a book. I mean, I write about DJs, but I suppose I've never quite had that mystique of the DJ. Uh, some of my favourite DJs are, are really obscure ones or less, you know, some of my best dancing nights have been when I've gone to, like, say, a club like Labyrinth, where I didn't even you know who the DJ was that night. And the, they actually, in the Labyrinth, this is legendary club in East London, the DJs went on a stage. They weren't. They were in a little kind of room, tucked a little booth or something, tucked away in the corner. You never saw them. There was no veneration of the DJs. They were just the resident DJs playing the music, and there wasn't this sort of uh, mystique about them. I'm, on conversely, I've gone to see loads of like very touted legendary DJs, and it's been like nothing special. So I've always felt, I always felt the producer is the key person much more than the dj uh uh i I guess perhaps that's a residual rockism but i've always felt like djs play other people's records sometimes they make tracks themselves and then they that's an interesting dynamic but you know um i think i think the cult of the dj is is a bit weird really i think the the biggest ones are just absurdly overpaid considering they're largely playing records other people made um but you know maybe that's still some residual rockism in in me i don't know what do you think i mean it could be it was kind of interesting to me how i think the the initial uk version of the book didn't even have the uh, in the mix chapter that would that kind of focused on djs like i felt like uh for a book about underground dance culture and rave there wasn't as much of a focus on, on on djs as that i'm you know uh, was yeah, it a conscious think, decision or did it just kind it of just, accidentally happen? It was really long and something had to be left out of the UK one. And so we left that one out. And then um, and then in the American one, um, the editor felt that um, because the book had a more of an introductory feel, uh, you know, it was like, yeah, no, this has stuff that explains basic facts about DJing that you kind of can't assume that your readers in America will will know. So we kept it in there. Um, and I think it's very interesting. And and when I did the update, I, I, I found it very interesting to find out about how Serato and the other, you know, sort of other technologies had changed DJing and um, uh, I have DJed myself. I'm a selector rather than a mixer. And I have, a, I have a friend who um, who is actually a very good DJ and technically, and we used to we used to do a double bill together. And uh, he's like adept at mixing, but my 
my my set got much better response uh, because just because of the tunes I played, and I they were very in, inexpertly kind of um, you know segued from one to the other. Uh, there was no like beat matching or anything, but just by playing better tunes. But I suppose I didn't need to. wasn't going to mix them. I didn't pick. I pick pick tunes that kind of stood out more individually, rather than picking tracks that kind of were mixed compatible. To me, you know, my my my, my most purgatorial experiences of 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 uh going to clubs would be going to see people like digweed do these you know this when it was the progressive sound and when when you had tracks that kind of uh, seamlessly imperceptibly blended into the next track and the mix might be like five minutes long and and they're doing all this stuff and i just found this really tedious uh i like you know the wham bam approach of anthems uh things that are distinct to songs, you know, and, and uh, perhaps that's a bit of a, I don't know if it's a rockism. I think I'm actually, actually a bit of a populist. I think I like, I like these sort of anthems and, um, and the scenes that are very, very haunted around the DJ art of very sl- long, slow blend, mix and blend mixes. They tend to be anti-anthem, you know, because anthems stick out too much, don't they? And they, and they, and they, it's harder to transition from an anthem it's almost like a a kind of aesthetic of the uh the nondescript i think <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can very- definitely agree with you there as a dj i always kind of wanted to play the bigger tracks and you found out that two big tracks back to back often rock the boat a lot and you know you get a lot of flack yeah. from other djs because you're not seamlessly like taking taking one thing to the other but that's just yeah the energy's not high enough there so i was always willing to be a little bit rougher as a dj uh, in order to to just go and not have any filler, I mean, I I, I sort of I do it. I kind of always wished. I, uh, we haven't got the camera. You can't see. I have one Technics table. Uh, I never got the second one. I never got the mixer. I kind of wish I'd learned to do it just to understand it, appreciate it more. Perhaps in the same way that I kind of would have liked to learn to play guitar. So I, you know, I can tell when someone's a great guitarist, but there's an extra level when you know how hard or how clever. Um, a, a bit of playing is uh, a, a chord sequence or just what they're doing, you know, with effects or whatever. And I kind of wish that I'd sort of learned to DJ, but um, yeah, it, I, I would probably have ended up a very mediocre DJ. And the occasions when I have DJed, um, my thing of being the selector rather than the, the mix and blender actually has worked quite well, I think. Um, I, th- I think um, James DeVell actually is someone like that, that who, uh, when he DJs, he doesn't mix. I don't know to slander him, but yeah, I think there are some people who have been like sort of name, name yeah. DJs who don't really mix. Especially the Jamaican way. And that whole school of thought has gone completely into play the song, don't don't do any trickery or mixing. And let's hear our next track. This is Four Heroes, Where's the Boy?
Yes. And Ryan, if you can explain why you picked Four Heroes, Where the Boy for, Where's the Boy for our second track, and then take take it away. I'll uh, just, you know, Energy Flash does such a good job of following the history of, of, of hardcore into jungle. And this was a slice from Dark Side around 1992 when, when hardcore breakbeat was morphing into jungle drum and bass. And it was a real interesting chapter. So I thought it would be a, a good a good thing to throw in there. And uh, just, just kind of rolling into a little bit of your rave experience, Simon, I, I was kind of curious as to the nitty gritty of of how you kind of got into it and and were you participating in the weekender lifestyle with a with a whole party crew did you fall hard into the jungle or hardcore scenes uh and, and how surreal was it to have magazines and other outlets funding uh these trips <laughs> that to experience the more international elements of rave culture around the world yes uh i mean i i sort of i kind of wrote about house music and acid house quite early on as just a reviewer like so um like when I, you know, I, there were particular records I really liked, and I would review them as singles in Melody Maker, along with hip hop releases, and and uh, but I never really joined the club, the lifestyle um, as such. I was still too much caught up in, uh, you know, I was the things I was writing, writing about were things like My Bloody Valentine and Sonic Youth and the Pixies, and that was the sort of that and hip hop uh, were the things I was doing the bulk of my writing about in the late eighties. And uh, I really got caught up in raving. I know I just sort of started to notice these harder strain of tracks coming through, particularly a bunch of things on RNS. Uh, they came to me all as CD singles, bizarre, bizarrely, like a whole bunch of them. And there was like CJ Boland, Horsepower, um, the, the Joey Beltram staff, uh, Second Phase, Mentasm, Human Resource Dominator. And um, I'd heard a few things in this vein before, like um, the House of God by DHS and Eon's releases, but this was like a, a thing where I was like, whoa, this has got a lot harder, heavier, intense. It's not, uh, you know, happy piano house music from Italy. It's actually coming into my sort of zone, which is like, which was, you know, this sort of Dionysian rock music, you know, the, um, this sort of overwhelming wall of sound thing. When I played Dominator, Dominator and Mentasm particularly was like, whoa, this is the rock music of the future. Um, and as it happened, some friends, of, of, of a very good friend of mine uh, had sort of, through being an indie person into Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and then those sort of groups had sort of, like quite a lot of indie people in the UK had drifted into going to raves. Um, and so um, I think as I outlined at the start of the book, yeah, I went to this, I went to a couple of things in short succession where I had my sort of um, road to Damascus. I was like pre-prepared by hearing this music, but then I had this uh, road to Damascus experience um, going to an event that Shaman did. They did, a, they did a regular series of events. They were like a, you know, a psychedelic rock group who drifted into making, very gradually actually drifted to making sort of dance music. Um, and um, they put on these events called Progeny. I think they changed the name a couple of times, but once one of them was called Progeny, and they would have they would play, but they would have DJs, and they would have um, like a band like Orbital, often who were a techno band, but they could play live, which was then quite unusual, like really playing live. Uh, 
And so I went to this event in Brixton and it was, yeah, it was like a baptismal experience. And, um, and it, for, suddenly, you know, you hear, you hear the music and that's one thing and you're swayed by it. But then to see it as, as, an, as, as a full culture, I mean, I, I was just blown away by the, the frenzy. I mean, I'd probably seen clips on TV or I, I knew, kind of vaguely knew what, what actually being in a rave is like. But actually being in the thick of these very young people, guys with their shirts off, uh, punching the air, girls like lost in this trance, doing this kind of devotional hand movements. <laughs> I was like, Jesus you know, this is, well, this is like religion. These people are, uh, you know, it, it's like a sort of pagan mystic cult, um, which, uh, and the music was fantastic. The orbital was fantastic, the DJs. And then there was another event I went to where, uh, like a month or two later, where, yeah, it was just a totally transporting experience and I sort of understood the collectivity of it and how the action was on the dance floor and the interactions, the way, you you, um, you caught the eye of a of a stranger and you're both on the same vibe and uh, people it felt to me like people were were mimetically picking up dance moves from each other almost like memes you know like someone would do a hand movement and someone else would pick it up and uh, I felt like you know the whole dance floor was like this organism um, so it sort of uh, on the one hand I was you know uh, off my head dancing but on the other hand uh it takes a lot to turn my brain off and so on the other hand i was like connecting it to the kind of intellectual theories i was into at the time Deleuze and guattari and all this stuff to do with flow and rhizomes and and uh yeah and there was the era of people talking about chaos theory and map fractals and stuff and um so I really liked your breakdown on on vibe that was in the the Q and A in the uh, the second edition where you really broke down the idea of vibe and it wasn't just like a, you know a throwaway word that we don't really think about but you you got you weren't afraid to really kind of go deep down and, and look at it. At this at this second event uh, in November ninety one, um, I had been gone long to review it. I you know said said uh, to the melody maker reviews editor, "Can I go and re- review this show?" and um, so I got with my notepad, and during the course of this fantastic night, I said to my group of friends, uh, let's do a collective review. And I, so I passed the notepad round. You know, I was all buzzing on the anonymous collectivity of Rome. So I, I passed, kept passing this notepad round. Of course, all of, everything that was scribbled was completely illegible because people were dancing, trying to write <laughs> their thoughts down. But I, start, I, didn't, I styled it as a, as a sort of collectively written review. Um, I kept the the meager payment to myself of course and speaking of capitalism we need to take a quick sponsor break and when we come back i'll hand it back to ryan and let him ask you the next question and take it away mr harkness nah, i mean i don't even want to interrupt you uh, simon you were on a tear keep going <laughs> well yeah this is the one thing you find as as this goes on is that i once i get going i you find it hard to stop, especially when it's these sort of uh, halcyon memories of this era. But um, yeah, you were asking about the darkness thing. This, this is the thing. Like, so I thought I'd come into rave. Yeah, and I did this piece for Details magazine, uh, where they did um, Details like a men's magazine. I did had a very good music section, and they they did send me a few places. They sent me to Belgium 
so I actually went to the RNS offices and met the people, who, and I met CJ Boland. And uh, unfortunately, I went in the middle of the week. There was no clubs on, but uh, that was kind of cool to be in Belgium, which was then like you know one of the white hot centres of hardcore techno. And then I went to Seven Oaks, which is a town in, in, in sort of 40 miles out of London. Where that's where Orbital lived. I, I saw my first Roland 303. You can't imagine how thrilled I was. They showed me their 303 and how it worked, how to get a bass pattern out of it. Um, they are very nice. Um, there was a guy who's now dead called Jones, who was there publicity, who turned me on to a lot of stuff. Uh, he was very helpful. I met so many people. I, did, I met, met uh, Joey Beltram through that. I didn't interview, but I met Jeff Mills briefly in a club when he was pretty unknown. I interviewed Derek May and Kevin Saunderson, Alternate, who were like, you know, the, the the rave jesters of that time. They were having all these sort of wacky hits. There was a whole bunch of people. I can't even remember all the people I interviewed, but it was like a proper reported piece, um, um, partly based in New York, partly based in uh, London. Oh, I met Spiral Tribe, you know. So um some of the ingredients actually of energy flash were were in this details piece in terms of who i met the span of the music i was getting a sense of europe detroit um uh, new york the uk and then and and the the sort of crusty raver underground spiral tribe this sort of free party scene much of the actual scope of the book uh, the one thing, though, at that, that time, I didn't realize how important breakbeats were going to be. So I, I sort of made one bit that's sort of quickly overtaken by events in this piece. I did was I sort of made a comment about, you know, white labels where someone's thrown a, together a breakbeat and uh, put some samples over on it. And I was much more at that point into the sort of Beltram hard techno sound. Uh, I found that the scene always divided itself into two kind of there was the four four people and there was the broken beat and they were they were kind of a separate crowd because it was they one was interested in one and the other was is I don't know if it's a brain thing. I think at first everyone liked all of it. It's just that when it became all break beats, then a lot of people who liked the sort of four four hard techno thing kind of branched off and then you had trance and you had trance originally was quite a hard sound, kind of cold hard. Eurosound. So, um, but yeah, like within a few months, I was like totally like, Breakbeat is the future. Uh, uh, and I was, I'd gotten into the pirate radio thing. And I, um, but in those days, yeah, I would go to these gang of friends. We had to check out everything. So a lot of the time we would go to house clubs because my friends were more into house. Uh, we would go to progressive e places. There was a place called Club UK. Um, we would go to Ministry of Sound, which was like, kind of house deep house garage you know i was checking out everything but more and more my taste it, um, sorry i'll, I'll read it sorry about that um yeah um i would be going with my my friends uh my 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 gang uh to a whole gamut of clubs to check out everything progressive house um, Deep House at the Ministry of Sound. Um, uh, went to a place called Knowledge, which was very austere, hard, banging techno, not a breakbeat in sight. Um, but if it was up to me, I would be increasingly lobbying to go to jungle, sort of proto-jungle places, particularly this place, Labyrinth. We would, we would go to the Labyrinth 
the East London, this very working class, mixed race club, quite scuzzy, but sort of with a, 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 a fantastic aura of enchantment about it as well. Uh, listen to all this total breakbeat music. Then we would go to this club that started at 4 a.m., a, a, a gay club called Trade, in, much nearer the centre of London. And that would start at 4 a.m. and go till, um, I don't know, that would go to the following evening on Sunday. And, um, yeah, so, you know, it's just a mad adventure. Checking out loads of things. I hadn't, I, I wasn't, I wasn't completely fixated on, on the emerging jungle sound, but it was, it was what I sort of came to decide or conclude that was the real cutting edge of UK music. And I just, I like everything about the, the, the multiracialism, the, the, the mix, the class thing was very interesting to me. Uh, the use of samples, the fact that it had this relationship with hip hop and it was like this mad sped up version of hip hop. Um, the cheekiness, I like the combination of the, the cheesy cheekiness of having things stolen from pop records, but then you'd have like very sinister things from horror movies, uh, the heavy reggae bass, um, and the sense that something was emerging from this, you know, there's a lot of kind of trashy music, but within it, you could sense this, um, this thing emerging. It was like the most exciting thing to witness this, uh, something emerging on a monthly basis. And also yeah. this, you mentioned that you played for hero the dark thing just blew my mind. Like the fact that people would dance to songs about death and drug overdoses and, and paranoid oral hallucinations was just, uh, it really blew my mind um, and reminded me of things I'd liked actually in the past, like Cabaret Voltaire and 23 Skidoo, this sort of sinister funk, avant funk music in the post-punk days. Yeah, and you captured it brilliantly. It's like you had a front row seat for a collective version of Michelangelo bringing the slave to life out of the Marvel. And thank you for documenting that. I want to drop our next track. This is the Todd Terry remix of Everything But The Girls Missing. Was missing by everything but the girl remixed by Todd Terry. Ryan, why'd you pick that one? Uh, just kind of as a counterpoint to some of the more underground selections, like representation of the dance music that broke through and just smashed it on the charts. Like you couldn't escape this track in 1994. Todd Terry and Masters at Work were, were were so on there. So I just wanted to kind of include something in there that you know is underground but also broke through. And uh, but but kind of uh, getting into maybe how we look back on on the rave scene now, watching a lot of documentaries now on 90s UK rave, I feel there's a, a push to kind of force the scene into this political place where raving was like a rejection of Thatcherism and a form of protest against mainstream society. And while I don't disagree that maybe a big part of raving was an attempt to create a cultural space that didn't suck in all the ways that Thatcherism made the real world suck, I always kind of felt like it was more of a disconnective act, like the practical application of tuning in, turning on, and dropping out. 
So I was curious, Simon, what's your take on the the politics of early rave or the modern analysis of of rave as a political thing, uh, in the, when it, as it was in the past? Well, you're talking about the Jeremy Dillon doc, I think, right? Just, uh, one of yeah, the, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting doc, but I, you know, the one thing that I did think all the way through was like, how come you've not mentioned drugs? I mean, the whole thing was driven by drugs. And as much as it was, you know, you can say it's this kind of vaguely, uh, yeah, like socialistic community feeling in a time when Thatcher is privatizing everything. And um, uh, there's that going on, but there's also a lot of enterprise and there's a lot of crime involved. There's a lot of gangsters. There's a lot of people making quick money through either promoting legal events, doing merchandising, T-shirts, tapes, or um, um, drugs, you know, drugs. <laughs> People made a lot of money of selling drugs. And, um, but yeah, you know, like one of the things is this boom of, of enterprise. All these people, like Dan Donnelly of Suburban Base, start, started his own record shop, I think, when he was 19, Boogie Times, record store out in Romford in Essex and then that evolved into the label Suburban Base. This is like, these are young entrepreneurs uh, hustling and um, identifying a market and supplying it with you know, in Suburban Base's case, all this fantastic breakbeat hardcore and jungle um, and it's the same story, you know, the same story all across uh, the culture is, is uh, record stores that become labels Walk Records is another example, but there's so many examples. Uh, it's enterprise. Um, you could say these are the children of Thatcher in a way. Um, so I, you know, I think, but mainly I just was like, let's not forget that the culture was driven by by illegal substances, and um, and and it had a sort of uh, a, a decadent, you know, you know, not to be judgmental, but a kind of decadent or dissipatory, or certainly a debauched aspect to it. You know, there's a lot of squalor in, in the in rave scenes. They often start out very idyllic, uh, and you know, peace and love, and then they go to the dark side, and people take too many drugs. They mix their drugs. They uh, they just, you know, they fry in their minds, really, and they get, get paranoid. And so I, I think that sort of side of it, I, 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 I think it is a danger of in the revisionism of making it seem like this um, entirely positive, constructive, wholesome, even slightly saintly <laughs> form of culture, whereas anyone who's been to raves knows it's not like that. It's a mix of both. It's, it's, it, and it has this weird dialectic where it goes from being quite heavenly to being potentially a little bit hellish, um, uh, you know, utopian, dystopian. These are words I overuse in the book. You know, if you did a word search on the book, utopian and dystopian would come up an embarrassing number of times. But I think there is a kind of dialectic there, kind of, or, or a, not a dialectic, but like a polarity where something that starts, a scene that starts out like a little utopia can take a dystopian turn. Yeah, we always used to talk in our scene about the sketch, and the sketch was a was kind of this nebulous thing that would come in and ruin everything, and things would get sketchy. And again, it was partially vibe, but it was also it was also physical as far as like uh, 
people stealing stuff and the cops coming and ruining things and and uh, people being stuck out on the street after being thrown out and practically freezing and it's, things just could get really sketchy and uh, you know they don't include that in the movie Groove that's for sure right I, yeah it's it's it's, it's I, I I always like to you know uh, it's a bit like with punk actually like punk uh, historians of punk have tended to sort of emphasize the DIY aspect and the stuff that's like community and but you know there's a lot of negativity in punk and nihilism and and uh the fact that you know many major punk figures died of heroin or uh and so forth shows the sort of the, and a lot of the aesthetics of punk are out, outrage and and you know de- destroy destruction and violence and stuff so um i always t- sort of try to emphasize this other side to these movements um i think you know part of it is because a culture that is sustained by drugs uh it's not ultimately tenable on the long term i don't think so um so there is always going to be this collapse back to reality i mean there are people who involved in in, in this music who works straight edge i believe or hero actually uh, were pretty straight edge um and didn't approve of ecstasy and Shadowman Dance, another outfit. Um, I'm sure the guys behind Underground Resistance, even though a lot of their music would be played to throngs of people on ecstasy or other drugs, I don't, I don't think they believe in it because they, um, they're quite sort of austere in their politics and their approach to music, aren't they? They're quite clear and rational. Not- <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And let's hear our final track. This is Daft Punk's Alive from 2007. was Daft Punk's Alive from 2007. Ryan, you tried to sum up the whole history of 40 years of music and four songs. I'll, I'll give you a pass on it. Tell us why you picked that one. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Daft Punk Coachella performance came up a couple times in, in Energy Flash as a seminal moment in North American rave history where like the winning formula of audiovisual spectacle is kind of was was laid out as a blueprint for people to copy and it kind of led to dance music finally exploding in North America so that was that was kind of the idea of of picking that one out and 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 in in that regard i was kind of curious you know one of the philosophical things that you kind of looked into was hakeem bay's temporary autonomous zone which is the idea that underground raves represented one of the purest functional expressions of a temporary space that eludes formal structures of control now given given that rave and electronic music has been largely integrated into the mainstream now and controlled at some level uh, tacitly or implicitly you know controlled at most levels really are the days of the temporary autonomous zone uh, largely behind us and do you feel like that's a key element in in the modern experience of rave that the kids are missing out on yeah i, I mean i don't think i've ever been to like a really um, electric daisy electric daisy 
carnival, like that sort of kind of EDM thing. I've been to Hard in LA, which is a, probably more musically interesting. But yeah, it's, it's, it's on the same lines. And it's like a super well-organized event. It's not really a, a temporary autonomous zone. It's, you know, all the, as Rays reached a certain level of hugeness, um, they became much more like rock festivals with, you know, security and backstage areas and certain VIP zones and, and um, uh, yeah, not a lot of money involved in them, a lot of money being made, a lot of preparation. And, you know, it's a long way from, you know, the sort of semi-impromptu beach raves of, say, the San Francisco scene or the Spiral Tribe raves, which involve a bit of preparation, but there's a much more of an anarchic feel about them. And especially if they were free or, like, payment was voluntary, where you kind of, you know, the, the sound system people would go around the bucket and those who could put a bit of money in uh, to help them run the generators would put a bit of money in um i think you know i think hakim bay would say a, 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 a temporary autonomous zone as soon as you have t- ticketing uh, as soon as you have paid admission you're already in a different space it's not really an, an anarchic space um yeah it's kind of so, like there's there's different levels to it and uh, everybody was cheating a little bit and and maybe even now like with the level of control that that kids live under post 9-11 and, and these days with uh, surveillance and everything else like that maybe maybe the rave still exists as a as a relatively autonomous zone for them well I, um one of the things uh one of the things um that probably these big festivals are like is more like sort of one-off amusement parks. Um, um, I think one, one of the people I interviewed, um, I think it was the guy behind Electric Daisy Connell, he said his dream was to make a sort of adult Disneyland. So, you know, it, you know, Disneyland is, is very far from a temporary autonomous zone. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, there are like tunnels underneath Disneyland, aren't there? And people, all kinds of people going around cleaning up garbage and, and all the people in the suits who are sweating and vomiting <laughs> in the furry suits. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure factory. It's a pleasure, it's a, it's a giant spectacle, um, entertainment. And so the way that EDM has gone um, is, is a long way from uh, the underground race, I think. And, things in, in squatted buildings um but there's still certain elements i mean i i i was quite excited when edm blew up but i it's it i was aware that it, it wasn't um it was like a, a mass marketed version of rave it wasn't yeah it felt like uh, castle, castle morton versus electric daisy carnival the difference is at castle morton everybody is trading beers and everything is kind of provided by the people and while at electric daisy carnival it's a corporate structure and you can't do anything but consume yeah um but i guess yeah i guess there are still like free parties going on and and um i think there are people actually even during covid there were a bunch of very lawless events that happened in the uk where people were so desperate to have to dance and to be in a crowd of people that you had these these sort of probably very uh virally uh unsafe events um that were sort of yeah done in the classic rave style of, of like 
info, you know, location going out at the last minute, uh, you know, using social media to sort of make a, a rave happen um, in, in this sort of secret way so that people have assembled and the police can't do anything about it because they don't want to riot. Um, so I think there's still, is, you know, the, the, the TAZ still exists uh, here and there. Um, and there are probably squat raves going on in all kinds of places around there. Yeah, the underground still still thrives in the underground. Yeah. Now, uh, to, to throw back into the book, uh, you're never afraid to call out a scene or, a scene or genre or artist uh, when, when you feel like things have gotten shallow or pedestrian. Uh, we had a, a good laugh over how hard you casually slagged some people in your book, like uh, Adamski. I think he got he got pretty railed pretty hard. Have you have you gotten any pushback from from artists after the book came out where they were like, "Dude, you did me dirty"? Not really. No. Um, actually, you know, I really liked Adamski's Killer. Uh, I just didn't think the follow up was very good, um, or and the album wasn't very good. But um, that was the song he did. He got to number one with Seal doing the vocals and. Um, but, and I liked him as a person, um, but, um, uh, I don't think I have really in terms of artists. I mean, I think there are people who were like, uh, like fans of particular genres who were like, yes, you, you should have written more about trance or the European scene, uh, should be covered more. Um, but you know, in part I was restricted by what I'd experienced. So a lot of it was UK and America. And uh, then when the books were originally written, I didn't know that they would be translated at that point. So uh, it was you know, gonna come out in the UK and America. So um, it makes sense that that's what I focus on. There are lots of untold stories, you know, like the German story um, is, um, is a whole other enormous thing and um has all these roots as well in 80s sort of ele electronic body music and um and the neue deutsche Welle, the new wave german post-punk um france is a whole other thing you know there, there's a lot of other stories the one place in the book where i sort of really get truly international is with when i'm writing about trance the second time and particularly i was actually very taken with the psychedelic trance scene. It wasn't like music I'd want to play at home particularly, but in the in the in the club experience, seeing again, it's like this when you see the full, you don't just hear the music, you see this the, the full movie. You see the people dressed the way they dress, dancing in this unique side trance way. There's all these Israelis, you know, which is like a, a, a funny thing about side trance is this how popular it is in Israel. Um and uh, it all makes sense. It's, there's this subcultural theory term homology, which is like when there's a resemblance on different levels of, um, it's actually an anthropological term, I think. You know, so like the, the music, the, the dancing movements, the clothing, the things people say or, or talk about, the slang, they all mirror each other and they all add up to a coherent system. And so for me, as someone who, who, who like grew up reading subcultural theory and, and enjoying this kind of analysis of punk and mod and things like that to be able to do that with say psytrance is very enjoyable because you can say oh yeah it all fits there the drug even the drugs that they particularly favor on that scene 
fit with the the graphic art, the, fra- the the sort of rather kitschy imagery, trippy imagery they use, the names of the, the bands. It all there's all there's a kind of logic to how um, uh, everything fits together. Um, but I just enjoyed being in such a, a space where there was such a defined vibe. You know, back to this vibe thing. A- anywhere where there's a kind of sort of collective single-mindedness, you know, creates something exciting to be inside, even if you're not, if you, if you don't belong to it fully as a member of the subculture, you're sort of in a, there's an atmosphere, you know. Um, so yeah, I was, uh, but that Psycho Trance is the most absurdly international scene. There's like important artists in Denmark and Macedonia and, and, and they have events in like Morocco and I went to one in Puerto Rico and, um, you know, Australia has a big scene and up on the upper north um, west, I guess, or east, northeast of, um, of Australia is this sort of psychedelic trance scene where it used to be, uh, I'm not sure now. So the fact that it was so international kind of really interested me. Um, yeah, I find those scenes that have a, a strong sense of identity, like jungle and uh, and psytrance, seem to seem to be the ones that uh, that that propagate the longest, or, or or manage to survive. Maybe where where other other genres just kind of peter out and and disappear. Yeah, and uh, yeah, because there's you're uh, part of the attraction. I think is to be a part of a tribe. Um, I don't know if I use this concept in the book, but. I, I have used this concept of sort of elective tribalism. So, like normally a tribe, you're born into it. Your entire worldview uh, is conditioned by being in a tribe. But an elective tribe, you're choosing to be in a tribe. So you have a civilian existence, your job, family, f- friends who aren't ravers. Then you meet up with the tribe folk at these sort of sacred spots, um, and you t- enter into the you enter into the the event. You dance in a particular way. Uh, you um, you use the slang, you use this private language of this tribe, and then the tribe disperses, you know, and then, then they reassemble again. Or that, you know, with jungle, you have the part radio to keep you going in between the raves and the club nights. So I, I find that fascinating. I think people, you know, people like the idea of being in a in a tribe and having this sort of identity. Um, and um, it, I think probably it provides some of the functions that. Uh, that you know, like people talk about the indeed atomized nature of modern society and the lack of any communal experience, and this is the sort of way of having it, uh, belonging to something. And as representatives of the electric tribe of the techno roll listener, Simon, thanks so much for coming on, and thanks so much for giving us something to talk about for 24 weeks. Uh, <laughs> Simon. Else? Well, thank you for uh, you know slogging through the book and uh, and going so in depth on it. And uh, yeah, it's great fun chatting with you guys. Uh, yes, and it was great fun doing this whole thing. And uh, my guest has been Simon Reynolds. The book is Energy Flash: A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture. And for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox. Thanks very much. We're going to take a break for a few weeks. I'll be talking about heavy metal with some other friends, and then Ryan and I will be back to continue this journey. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate returns with Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Ald to kick off a six-part history of heavy metal. 
Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.